0: When it comes to calling someone a bad name, it doesn't get much worse than Satan. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to Peter, rebuking him in front of the other disciples. Actually, when it comes to calling someone Satan, there is no parallel for it in Jewish or Christian literature until this moment in Mark's gospel account. Jesus does something new here, something powerful and unequivocally critical. But why now? Why was Jesus so angry with Peter that he would use this previously unused term to castigate his most loyal follower? Maybe a better question is, what led Jesus to understand this encounter as the moment when the personified forces of evil crossed over from the realm of pure spirit in order to take shape in the physical world. In the Old Testament, Satan is only mentioned three times, and all of those places are in relatively late written texts, texts that focus on dramatized spiritual encounters. In the book of Job, Satan comes to challenge God's assertion that the title character's mythical faithfulness is strong enough to withstand extreme hardship. Similarly, the prophet Zechariah envisions a heavenly courtroom-like scene in which Satan comes to accuse Joshua, the high priest, of being unworthy of God's favor. The other example comes from 1 Chronicles, when Satan is said to have tempted David into relying on the might of his army instead of the might of God. But nowhere in the Hebrew scriptures is Satan depicted in bodily form as one whose presence is physically manifest in the world. By the time Jesus confronts Peter in this gospel episode, Satan, the concept of Satan, has become more prominent in Jewish thought and theology, but still nowhere in the New Testament, not even in the apocalyptic book of Revelation, is Satan identified as having taken on flesh. At least nowhere but this moment when Jesus looks at his disciple and says, get behind me, Satan. Everywhere else in the whole Bible, Satan is a spiritual force confined to a spiritual realm. Of course, Satan's power and influence affect things here on the earth, but no one in Scripture, except for Jesus, suggests that the great opponent of God could be found walking among us in human form. There are moments when Jesus' adversaries accuse him of being on the side of the devil. And in last week's gospel rest lesson, we were told that while Jesus was out in the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan. But in all of scripture, only Peter is described as if he were Satan incarnate and described that way by Jesus of all people. Why in this moment? Why in this heated exchange do we see for the first time someone described as if he were the personification of evil itself? Because without even realizing it, Peter's objection was not merely a rejection of Jesus' teaching, but a rejection of the power of God present in this world. Although it's mostly foreign to our way of thinking, Jewish theology in and around Jesus' time understood that there were multiple planes of existence, planes in which the cosmic forces of good and evil were constantly doing battle. While the children of God struggled with their opponents here on the earth, up in heaven, beyond our sight angelic forces were locked in battle with demonic powers whoever prevailed in the spiritual realm would also be victorious here on the earth it was as if our outcome here in this world were actually the result of another struggle taking place in heaven If you want to read more about that, take a look at the last half of the book of Daniel where you get a glimpse at how this kind of spiritual warfare takes place where we can't see it and yet has very real consequences for God's people here on the earth. But in this exchange, in this moment between Jesus and Peter, we find that those heavenly forces were not only influencing human history but were becoming fully realized within it. When Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again, Jesus wasn't merely predicting his own death. He was revealing to his disciples the nature of God's victory that had come to the earth in himself. For the first seven and a half chapters of Mark's gospel account, Jesus's identity as the true Christ, the anointed leader of God's people, had remained hidden. All of Jesus' miracles were signs of his true power breaking through into this world, but no one except the demons that Jesus cast out were able to recognize them. But then, in the middle of chapter 8, just a few verses before our gospel lesson picks up, Peter, for the very first time, acknowledged who Jesus really was, the Christ the one in whom that great heavenly battle would finally be won here on the earth. And in response to that great confession by Peter, Jesus did two things. He ordered his disciples to keep that truth a secret, and he explained to them that winning that great battle would mean suffering and being killed before ultimately being raised on the third day. But Peter couldn't handle that. By correctly identifying Jesus as the Christ, Peter had identified him as the one through whom God's great spiritual triumph over evil would be brought to the earth. But instead of foretelling his victory over the earthly embodiments of the forces of evil, Jesus had predicted his own defeat at their hands. Peter wasn't willing to accept that. He wasn't willing to give up on his hope just yet. So he took Jesus aside in order not to challenge his master's authority in front of the other disciples, and he began to rebuke Jesus. But by doing so, Peter began to reject in Jesus the very power of God that had come to the earth. So Jesus rightly named it for what it was, Satan himself. In the form of a committed, though confused, disciple trying to defeat God's power here on the earth. I don't know about you, but I believe in the existence of Satan. By that, I don't just mean the absence of evil or the privation theory, the absence of good or the privation theory of evil. I mean the actual positive and at times physical embodiment of all that is opposed to god's will i think that popular culture by depicting satan in highly stylized ways has only advanced the cause of the one whose presence among us is much harder to single out than a pitchfork wielding demon with horns and a malevolent stare who is satan where is satan to be found all among us, and especially, if this gospel lesson has anything to teach us, in those who, like Peter, confuse the ways of the world for the ways of God. When Peter rejected his master's prediction, he didn't think that he was siding with Satan. He wanted to protect his teacher and preserve the opportunity for Jesus to triumph over evil once and for all, But what Peter couldn't understand is that that instinct within him for self-preservation, that drive to obtain his heart's desire, was fundamentally vulnerable to the effects of evil. They were subject to manipulation by Satan himself. Because if God's power is manifest principally in the one who suffers and dies for our sake, How can any of us strive for that which is of God until we ourselves have died with Christ? How could we ever fight for that which is the rejection of earthly power until we too have experienced the defeat of that power within us? Until we understand the cross as the path to our own fulfillment, we will always be vulnerable to Satan's influence. So often the way of Jesus has been perverted by those who use his holy name, who wield the Bible, and who weaponize the cross in order to further their own agenda. Of course, They cannot tell that they are standing on the side of Satan, for Satan does not openly recruit disciples to his cause. Instead, well-meaning disciples begin to believe that what they want must be what God wants, that the advancement of their interests in Jesus' name is, in fact, the advancement of Jesus' name. But none of us can set our minds completely on the things of God until that part of us that belongs only to this world has been crucified along with Christ. If we want to be followers of Jesus, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him not to our own glory, no matter how saturated it might be with Christian symbolism, but to God's glory, which is only revealed in humble sacrifice. As old-fashioned as it may sound, if we want to live with Christ, we must first die with Christ. Only in that death will we find abundant life. Only in that death does God's power triumph over the evils of the world. For what will it profit us to gain the whole world but forfeit our lives?